Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I am so happy to have you join us again. Today's guest is Edgar Soto. Edgar and I dish about the value in being patient and the fun around experimenting with recipes, flavors, and home cooking. Edgar was born in Mexico and now lives in New York City. He has a bachelor's in criminal justice and a master's in education. After being a teacher for over five years, Edgar has returned to school for another degree in nutrition with an end goal of being a registered dietitian. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Edgar Soto, to the Dish with Dina podcast. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. How are you doing? And how do we know each other, if you can share with my audience here? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, we, well, you are my professor in my dietetics nutrition major, uh, currently and the summer course. And I just came back from vacation uh, like a couple of days ago. So um, it was fun, but now I'm trying to get back into the, the group of things, new semester and a lot of classes that I have to keep my eye on. Yeah, for you and me, a little bit both as far as the school stuff is concerned. So yeah, you're one of, I think I've only had about a handful of students or maybe not even students who were currently students. Maybe they had already passed my course or they've gone on and graduated. So it's possible you might be the only currently active student. And so for those of you listening right now, um, I'm a teacher at the City University of New York, Lehman College in the Bronx. And I've been there for about five and a half-ish years. And Edgar, you, uh, you, you're you correct. You were with me for the summer semester that we just wrapped up. And not two weeks later, we started our fall semester. How many credits or how many courses are you taking right now? Taking 13 credits. I have um, two classes. I have a lab and then I have two more classes. The labs as well. And you're mostly on campus too. Like, are you opting to do more in-person things? Are your labs now also in person or is everything done online pretty much? So the two labs are in person. I have one class that is completely online then yours is a high flex option. Um, but I live in Queens, so that's a pretty long commute. So I have to make sure that I strategize and see how best to um, manage my time. That's one of the things that both I as a teacher and you as students were sharing or, or do share with me at the beginning of every semester that some people really don't mind having the option of logging in and learning remotely. And for the course that I teach, the courses that I teach, it's synchronous. So it means we're live, like I'm teaching the class and you're there learning it. Sometimes people are doing an asynchronous course where they're just doing a self-paced type of learning and the teacher is not in is not present at the time. How are you finding that? Because I, I tend to be a little bit of both. Like as a teacher, I don't love just doing online teaching, but I like it as an option for students like you who might live far away or might not be able to come to campus and offering more options for them than to have just the in-person classes. But as a student myself, I it, it's a little hit or miss. Like sometimes I want to have more live content. So if it's an asynchronous course, I'm completely lost. I don't love self-paced stuff because I just lose attention and I lose focus and I go off in a different direction. How are you finding that right now with the variety of classes and teachers that you've been having? Um, I enjoy that I have the option because um, like I said, a distance is a long, it's pretty long commute. Yeah. Um, I 
would say I'm a learner that I learn visually. So I'm good with in-person or online. So that's really my strong suit. Yeah. So I'm good with that. Go back in time about some of the earliest childhood memories that you had, in, especially in regards to food, whether it's holidays or cooking. Tell us a little bit about your experiences way back when you were a child. I guess my mom really brought us up on home cooking. That was my first uh, memory of that. I do remember food that I enjoyed. I remember food that I did not enjoy. And I remember the kind of like the start of my relationship with food. Uh, my mother's cooking. I love my mother's cooking. But it's some things that if I if she makes it again, I can't eat it because I have that memory that I'm like, I do not like it at all. Um, when it comes to food, I'm very big on like texture and taste. I watch a lot of these cooking shows. Uh, I also cook a lot of my mom's recipes. Basically cook almost, I would say, five days a week. Breakfast, dinner, all that. But to go back into that early childhood memory, um, I, I, be, I remember I really enjoyed food to a point where I really got chubby. <laughs> when it was my turn to, I guess, take that initiative and feed myself because you know when you're in school and growing up in the school you have to make sure that you eat but well my mom didn't pack us lunch because she said she was more as in school has food for you so you have to eat the food that's there then when you come home you have my food and will you share with us also some of the meals that you remember from back then like what were some of the traditional foods that you had at home and then tell us a little too about as you're venturing into more independent times things that you cook for yourself or you make for yourself. I remember when it was really hot, she would always make soup. And I think maybe it's a Latino thing, but I was always, even today, I have her cooking soup like in this very hot weather and I'm, I'm a little baffled like why? But now I do love soup. I think it's medicine for your soul. I, I love soup, I make it as well. But back then it was, it was one of the things I was like, I, I didn't get it. It's like, it's too hot for this. Um, but she made traditional Mexican food and some food she also made with a twist. She used ingredients that she knew pretty well. Some things I didn't like, like there's this uh, fungi that grows on corn, which is called coche, and she used to make that. And I, I hated mushrooms when I was, I was young. I didn't like them at all. Now I, I enjoy mushrooms. I remember her making this soup that I, I really did not like. It was like potato and celery soup. And I, to this day, I can't eat it. Um, I think it's a texture thing. And then also she wanted me to, to like eat it. Like She's like, if you don't eat it, I'm really going to get mad at you. I guess is that really ship as well. But now growing up, I have a, a lot of her recipes I cook or when I, when I cook and I don't remember them, I'm able to like call her and be like, hey, well, how do you make this? What ingredients do you use? What is the technique? Do you let it, re you let it rest? Now I'm like trying to get all her recipes and write them down and create like a cookbook. Really honoring that whole history and that heritage too. In our uh, past interviews, me and, and some of my other guests that I've had on, I should say, in the past interviews, we have something in common where a lot of us have grown up with parents who maybe were not born in this country or have different mindsets about how food is supposed to be treated and received. And it's either the world is dealing with hunger and famine issues and if you don't eat you're wasting food and there's people starving in the world that you know easily could be eating the things that you're leaving behind so we used to be held hostage at the table and we weren't allowed to leave until we 
finish the meal, even at a young age, even though sometimes, you know, the amount of food was like far too much for a child to eat at the time. And the second thing is about the food is love, right? Like I made this from my heart. And if you don't eat it, then it's almost like denying me the ability to share with you something that I really want to give you from, from a part, a point of love. And so it sounds a little bit like that was similar to your upbringing, or there was like an emotional connection to it when it came to your mom wanting you to make sure that you ate what, what she was serving for you. When you were a child, did you, did you help her out in the kitchen? Did you go grocery shopping with her? Did you understand how the flavors and the ingredients came together? Or was that something you learned and taught yourself later on in life? When I was small, I didn't really spend that much time in the kitchen. She was the one cooking. But I do remember her asking us to help her when it was like something for the whole family, like family events. When we had to make, when she was making tamales, like tamales, she would ask us to actually make them, like pat them down in the corn husk. And then she'll put the 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 sauce, the meat, whatever. She'll help, but like those type of family events, she would ask us for our help. And some, she also would sell some foods as well. So we were actually kind of, I, me and my cousin were the delivery boys. So we deliver, we were really young. Um, but yeah, but as I grew older, I, I didn't really cook or help her, but I, I'm very visual. So if I see her do something, I would always see her in the process, for example, if I went to get a cup of water or anything and she'd be cooking, I could see what she's doing and I could basically make the recipe by just looking at how she made it. And then, like you said, too, with getting and gathering some of her recipes and creating for yourself kind of a cookbook, but then experimenting with flavors and different cooking methods. I feel like a lot of times people get very overwhelmed when it comes to, you know, home cooked meals where they feel like they have to start from scratch. They have to spend a lot of time shopping, cooking, preparing, and some meals are time and labor intensive, but not everything has to be. And a lot of times I try to share with people too, especially on some of my social media posts that, you know, I'll just basically open up the kitchen refrigerator and just shove whatever's in there in a bowl. And <laughs> it could be last night's leftover fish. It could be cut off kernels from a corn cob. It can be um, sauteed spinach, string beans, you know, anything that just throws together and goes in there. So it doesn't have to be labor intensive. Tell me a little bit about that too. Like, have you grown to develop different palates and flavors and likes and dislikes as you've gotten older as well? That's an interesting point you made with the, just having the ingredients in your fridge or in your pantry and then using them to make a meal. I think that scarcity definitely creates um, really good dishes because all throughout history, people were giving like scraps and they made amazing meals out of it. And that's how I think as well. I, I use everything in my kitchen. I don't like to throw away any food. I use everything. And go back to the development of my palate. When I was younger, like I told you, I didn't like mushroom. I didn't like onion. There was a lot of foods I didn't like. And... But now, as I use them in my recipes, I kind of do a twist on it. For example, if I have red onions, I just don't eat them raw. I soak them in salt and lime juice, and it, they taste delicious. You get that, I guess, that bitterness or whatever that onion tastes out of it. And I really enjoy those classes because I'm able to see what 
they give you the recipes and you're able to make them. And I also like, for example, we would tweak it a little bit to make it our own way or to add a little bit of our own personality in it. And that was really fun. I think if I'm not mistaken, because I, I taught DFN 220, so that's Foods Society and Health. So that's like the global view of staple dishes and different kinds of meals across the world. And then we quote unquote healthified it in the kitchen because we were always taking things with a spin of, you know, in case people needed to decrease the salt and the fat and the sugar content, how would this be still palatable? How would this be something that's recognizable without deterring from the cultural attachment, which is a big thing, right? We want to make sure we're honoring the person's traditions and the food ways of their heritage and not completely say to them, you have to cut out certain food groups or certain ingredients for whatever reason. Of course, you know, unless they're allergic to something or it's, you know, they're dealing with a, a very specific chronic condition or an illness that they might have to do away with some things like kidney issues and diabetes and that sort of thing. So Edgar, Walk me through now, where did or did any of your upbringing lead you into the direction of where you are now as an older person, an, an adult, an independent adult? Tell me a little bit about the trajectory of where you came from and where you see yourself going, both personally and professionally. So when I was younger, my I didn't know what my interest was yet, but when I was still in high school, I started my first job at 16 in a pizzeria. And there I was just answering phones, but in my off time, I would go back in the kitchen and I would see what the cooks were doing. And the same thing with my mother, I would just look and see what they, what they did. And I was able to kind of like look at the ingredients and I actually took it, I took some of the ingredients home. I bought some of my ingredients and I cooked the Italian dishes that they were cooking there. And I would just ask some little questions. They were really open to teaching me what went in. And my mother was like, ha, if you really enjoy it, then why don't you become a chef? And then I thought about it. I was like, I'm, I'm good at cooking, but it's not something that I would do as a career. Like, I like it. It's therapeutic for me. But I also, when I was in high school at the same time, I was really into science. And I, I really enjoyed science. But when I went to college, for some reason, I chose criminal justice. And it's a little out of left field. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And then when I finished my bachelor's, I decided I did not want to go pursue that career because I wanted to be a police officer. But at that time, kind of, I kind of sat down and analyzed my whole mentality and see if I wanted to do it really. And I kind of like veered to a different direction. Then my one of my friends from high school, he said, if you don't know what to do for the meantime, you should go into a master's program that's going to pay is going to pay for your master's program and I actually got into childhood education so I have I did that and I graduated my master's and I taught for five years I just finished teaching and I think that was my last year teaching for a while I taught at a Catholic school in Harlem so for five years I was a teacher I taught in the South Bronx I've taught in Brooklyn in the Haitian community and now I've, I've taught at Harlem Community and one of the partner, partnership schools, at Catholic school. And now throughout my whole journey, I wasn't really had my heart in it. Like I enjoyed it. I love teaching because it made a difference to the children. It was the best thing, having that relationship with the children and seeing how they grow. But at the same time, I was like, I felt like I wasn't giving my heart into it. It wasn't something I wanted to do 
every cell in my body. Then at the moment I looked at the nutrition program. I was like, you know, well, science, I love science and I love food and it just clicked. And I was like, you know what? This is what I have to do. This is what I meant to do. I want to be a nutritionist. I want to go into that field. And I finally find my little niche. So now I'm like working hard for it, going in at it. Yeah. Well, I love the background that you have because even though you went in one direction, it led you in the opposite or it led you in a different direction, I should say. And you allowed whatever spoke to you at the time to kind of honor, this isn't really feeling like something I want to continue doing, or I think I want to move in this other direction. You also allowed yourself to spend a lot of quality time in the education world and gathering a lot of skills, because I think as we've come to talk about too in our classes, that a lot of the listening, critical thinking, strategizing of things, how old was, was your, were your grades when you, when you're teaching? How old was your classes or your students I should say so I stuck to middle school so my age was from fifth grade to eighth grade and then I did a couple of summer programs but I were I just actually finished a summer program a summer camp but I had all from like pre-k all the way up to eighth grade so I've taught a good amount of grades a wide variety. I'm asking that only because if you were teaching, say, third grade math, it's much different than eighth grade math or whatever the subject matters might be in that sense. And they also have different experiences, different levels of childhood development that you might be aware of, or maybe if they grew to like you as a teacher, they might be a little bit more open to sharing things with you because that's also something that I think in the course of development through, especially those middle school years, they're becoming more independent and a little bit more outwardly spoken. I guess they like, you know, enjoy sharing stories. And so do you feel now that you've switched kind of career pursuits, do you feel like there's a lot of knowledge base that you had from your prior degree education credentials and the experience that you had in your other jobs that you feel will translate into this new direction that you're taking? Absolutely. I've veered into the restaurant world because I've worked at restaurants, multiple restaurants and teaching as well, um, getting the like the viewpoints from my students because I, I had very different culture groups. So getting that culture, um, I guess, embraced from all of them, I'm able to now translate it into my next career. And I think all the strategy, like being a teacher, people don't see all that you do, but it's it's lesson plans. It's critical thinking. It's changing when you're while you're at work. It, it's kind of like if a student doesn't get something, you have to change your approach. But it's a lot of like, it's a lot of work being a teacher. And I think that there's a lot of skills there that I I can translate to my new profession. And um, also working in a restaurant, I know good amount of that. So I know how a restaurant works. I know how a restaurant operates. I've been manager. I've been on the line, been the cook, been a waiter everything so a lot of experience that I could use you really do and I know we've spoken about this I think in our classes also that when it comes to what you're going to probably be doing in the future you and we'll talk about that in a second that it really is an individualized approach so even though you had the experience and the training as an educator and whatever other experiences you've had in other situations and environments you're still catering your 
expertise and your approach to what the what the end result, the end user needs. So your audience member, your student, your classroom. And going forward, whether you see yourself in the clinical setting or community setting, whether it's nutrition, counseling, or it's health education and promotion, that is going to play a role in it too. And I think a lot of, and I like sharing this information with the listeners as well, because a lot of times people just think, you know, we read the textbooks, we get the general guidelines, we as the professionals follow XYZ, and then the general public is told, you know, follow this, don't do this, eat this, work out this much. But it really is such a case-by-case basis. And a lot of people just in the in the healthcare world just don't have the time to cater their approach in such a unique individualized way. But I think it's really important to do so because everybody is so different and all of their environmental factors, socioeconomic factors, lived experiences, trauma, you know, all of these things end up creating and navigating who they become as the years progress. And so hopefully if we can start with reaching out to people a little bit on the younger end or helping people as they get into a more independent way of life and they start developing in that sense, that we can help them with navigating that that new world of having that relationship with food or understanding what their unique needs might be based on their population, designation, their conditions, et cetera. So I really appreciate what you're saying there too, about how you're very open to adjusting your approach. Um, I think we've also talked about in class, you, you know, you have a degree in education. I do not. And as an adjunct professor, a lot of times we're kind of just thrown into the classroom setting as though we're the expert of the topic, but we don't really know sometimes how to educate people or teach people. And that I want to ask you, do you think that's something that can be learned? Or do you think a lot of times people come with a preconceived agenda of how they want to share their message, right? Nutrition, education, health ed, promotion, et cetera. Do they have an agenda or can they be malleable in some way to be able to listen properly? What are some of the skills that they might need in order to be flexible like that? No, I think the second option, I think that somebody can be taught to teach. Uh, definitely when I when I went into teaching, I did not know what I was doing. So imagine being in a classroom with like 30 students and they're all looking at you, you know, and you're looking at them and you're kind of saying like, so uh, let's get started. But yeah, I think that you can be taught to teach. The only thing that you do need, I think is a lot of patience. Um, I had to use all the patients I had while teaching. And like you said, is everybody is different. Everybody has different backgrounds, different life experiences. Every student for me was different. I, I treated them all the same in a way that I gave them everything that everybody else got. I never treated nobody different, but everybody has their own individual personality, individual background. And I, I say it again, yeah, you can be taught to teach and it just takes time. Like I, your first year teaching, it's very different from your fifth year teaching. You get a hang of it. You see the mistakes you do. You see how you are able to get better at it. And it depends on the person too. It's like, if you want to improve and you're going to improve, but if you're just stuck in a way, you're not really open up your mind to like a growth mindset. It's kind of what the teachers, like you have to have a growth mindset. If you don't do that, then you're just going to be stuck in that same pattern and you won't grow from it but you are able to 
been taught how to teach. I think you pulled on a lot of different points there, the value of patience, right? So not knowing straight out of the gate that you're going to be able to do and be everything. We sometimes are told about the um, imposter syndrome that some people have of like, I can't do this. That's kind of the opposite intentions of, I know that I could do it, but I'm worried that I can't or that people are on to me. And so you have to have like a nice happy medium in there that you're open to adjusting, but also be confident in that you have the skills you were taught and educated on certain things. You have that knowledge base that you know more than the people who you're teaching, hopefully. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. you mentioned to the growth mindset, which I'm a huge fan of, but there's also removing your ego from that, right? So having the confidence in yourself to be able to be flexible, to receive feedback and evaluations, whether that comes from a peer to peer, or you have supervisors who might be observing you in classroom settings, or the people with whom you're working with, whether they're subordinate staff or students who are trying to gain experience from what we're teaching them, that that feedback is really important if you're open to it. And I definitely know, and I'm sure you do too, there's a lot of people who are very set in their ways. My way is the best way and I'm very rigid and I don't want to change. And that's really unfortunate because then it's obviously the person who's on the receiving end of what we're sharing, the education, the experience, the knowledge that ends up getting the brunt of that. Like they don't really have a well-rounded unique experience that reflects somebody who's willing to be able to individualize and reshape their approach. And so I appreciated you saying that. When you were in your education field, did you have observers come? Like were there not state officials, but I guess like the facilities higher up so they come and observe you and give feedback? And did were you also open to student feedback too? Yes. Yeah. We had so administration is the people that observe you. And you have different options. For example, you could get observed informally a certain amount of times. Or you could observe formally only a couple of times. But every year, they'll come in and observe you. And they give you a breakdown. It's like a big document. You're like, okay, this is what we saw. A checklist of so like effective, highly effective. Low, I think I forgot the, the low ones, low effective or whatever. Uh, and then they, they they give you grows and glow, grows and glows. And same thing with the students. They... Um, the students, I think more their viewpoint is like the teacher knows everything. That's when they're younger like that. It's like, if you make a mistake, they'll be like, how can you correct the teacher or whatever? But I always tell them, look, I'm going to make a mistake. I'm, I'm not going to be on it hundred percent. I'll make a mistake. And if I make it, call me out on it because I want you to tell me if I made a mistake, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to say, sit there and be like, no, this is right. And you're wrong. I'm like, no. We're humans. I'm gonna make a mistake. You're gonna make a mistake. So it creates also a culture of like them not being afraid to make mistakes. And I really uh, that's that was my mindset. And I actually the kids would give me like feedback. It's like I think you should, this way would be better for us to learn. I'm like, yeah, of course. If you want to, you want to do it that way, do it that way. I, I I wasn't really very strict. I was flexible to their um, feedback as well. I really love that safe and supportive environment that you created to allowing people to know that we're all human. And just because I might have a different level of expertise or knowledge in something that it doesn't mean that I'm going to forget, or I might make a mistake in what I'm sharing. And so allowing 
your students to say, um, I think, did you mean this instead of that? Because it does happen. We have so much information in our brains and sometimes we get confused with things. So I really appreciate that approach. Talk with me a little bit about a current week of life of you now, now that you've kind of transitioned in and out of some things. So now that I've, you know, stopped teaching, I'm not teaching now. Normally I would be working a eight to four job teaching at a school. But now it's got kind of actually kind of new because I have a couple of classes in the morning. So it doesn't let me get doesn't let me get a job that it's has like a nine to five. And so a couple of days are a little unorganized because of the time. Um, but the high flex option is really good because I'm able to stay home and do whatever I need to do. But as of right now, I'm currently looking for employment. I'm trying to see what the hour, I have my hours or what, what I can do. But uh, as of right now, I don't have like a set schedule except my schoolwork, which I take time every day to look over, do assignments. And I'm trying to start again to group again of school because, you know, in the summer, not, well, I only had a couple of weeks off because I took a summer course, but those couple of weeks do really throw you off and you have to get back, zone in. And after that, I'm going to find like a part-time job and do school and work until December and see what my schedule will be like until for the next semester. How are you most productive in juggling a lot of the things that you have going on? And then what are also some things that we always call these like the non-negotiables? What are things that you absolutely must do for your own self-care, your own health and wellness, regardless of how crazy your schedule may or may not be? Having the right schedule, sticking to that schedule, waking up at a certain time. And for me, the most important thing is my, my nutrition and um, making sure that I work out. So it doesn't have to be a big workout. People say go to the gym and do like two hours, but no, you could just stay home, a couple of dumbbells, take like 45 minutes or go for a run or for a walk. Those two things are the most important. And I always make sure my nutrition is, I get balanced meal every day. So if I don't, then I feel like I'm off. Is sleep important to you too? Because as a college student, I know a lot of people pull all-nighters, they cram in, sometimes they have to wait until the last minute to get things done. So it becomes, you know, very late night for them and then everything else gets thrown off during the week. So how important is sleep for you? Oh, sleep is important. I think I think I didn't talk about it because I guess I get enough sleep. Uh, I'm able to sleep about seven hours a day. I can't do all-nighters. I'll fall asleep by one o'clock if I try to do that. I'm one of those people that I, I can't, I have to wake up early and take care of what I need to take care of. I think it's called um, delayed gratification. Delayed gratification, it means that you do your things first and then you're able to relax. That's my, I guess, my personality. And then some people, they procrastinate and then they put all-nighter and they're like, they need that pressure to be able to perform. Like, I can't do that. I have to my work first i can't do that either it makes me so anxious i'm known to well i mean you know me as a teacher too i like to maybe sometimes i don't know if you've been in my classes where i've done that where we have end projects in my graduate classes that i teach where i provide like checklists and reminders for things milestones for things like by now you should be having this thing done or by now you should be working on this part of the project and so that's how i like to work i like to break things up into chunks so that i'm not cramming everything at the very last minute because that will make me super anxious and then the quality of the work i feel goes down too and then it also affects everything in my mind the very next day and on and on because you know anytime that i happen to stay up 
gosh, at these days, probably past like 10 o'clock at night. I think that's my cutoff 10 to 10 30 PM. Anytime I'm past that, I'm like, forget it. My whole day is ruined the next morning. So I'm really glad that sleep isn't even an issue for you, that you're maintaining a structured sleep schedule and you're good getting good quality and quantity out of that. This is my PSA right now to anyone listening. Sleep, I would put as a priority above all other health habits, because if your sleep is shot, it's going to affect literally everything else. And it can put you more at risk for things like Parkinson's disease and dementia and a lot of metabolic issues can be thrown off because of your sleep schedule. So do your best to maintain a good sleep habit. I don't care if you think you can only get by with four hours a night, your body cannot, it's not good. So Edgar, you talked a little bit about the current pursuits and where you may sort of see yourself going. Are you thinking of specializing in anything? And with the fact that you do engage in fitness and you do like cooking are culinary or sports nutrition is any of that going to maybe filter into where you might see yourself going in the future in this new field um i don't think sports uh i enjoy sports i play sports but i don't think it's a passion i think that maybe more in the culinary culinary direction sports and fitness is more as in more like therapy i guess for me and the other one is more where i'm veering towards i'm more interested in that one but right now i'm, I'm not really sure what I'm going to specialize in, but I'm definitely going to um, take the exam and become a registered dietitian. And in that process too, I mean, whoever is listening to the podcast has heard many dietitians on it, many dietetic in interns on it and some students on it, but just to clarify the process of becoming a registered dietitian. So Edgar, even though you have those other degrees, you still have to do a lot of this curriculum, which gets you to a certain endpoint where then you go into you have to apply for and get accepted into a dietetic internship and that is a full program in and of itself where it's a whole year long is it like 12 i think it's 1200 hours now if i'm not mistaken they changed it for pandemic reasons a few years ago and then i think they switched it back but it's like an entire year of just going through rotations through different situations environments populations conditions facilities so community settings nursing homes public school public health etc and then coming out the other end a year later after that of taking a national exam and getting credentialed as a registered dietitian so this is quite the process i wish you all the best i am so glad i'm on the other side of it but i definitely feel for anybody who's currently in it because i know how complicated and challenging it can be and how taxing it can be even though I wish it wasn't, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of challenges that come up in the whole process of becoming a dietitian. But we need more dietitians than left, less. So thank you for pursuing and persevering this as a profession for yourself. In the future, you that you said, you know, you may or may not see as far as what population or condition and going into the dietetics career, but are there any goals or things that you want to focus on personally for yourself that you see yourself in the five to 10 year range? Like, do you have some sort of idea of what you want to set out to do or a legacy that you might want to leave behind? I do want to help people. That's definitely, I think one of my top, if not the top priority is being able to make a difference in people's lives. Definitely through nutrition. I think also because I have had struggles with also my relationship, so it hasn't always been perfect. So I have had struggles with health and nutrition and mental kind of like struggles as well. So my relationship has only, hasn't always been great with food, but I definitely want to help people with their nutrition. Are there any go-to resources that you enjoy, like on a daily or weekly or monthly basis? Definitely reading articles I keep up on like nutrition. I have a couple of 
of sources of emails that they sent out. I'm not pretty sure. Like there's some that I signed up um, from your class. I do definitely keep up to date with those and also recipes and trying to create recipes that are a little more health conscious. Of my background, my Mexican roots, my family, they don't always use the healthiest ingredients. Like they're, they're, the food is healthy, actually. If, I look, if you look at it, um, beans, veggies, all that, corn, pretty healthy, but sometimes they use like pig fat and all that. And it's, it's great to eat once in a while, but then I also like to tweak it. So make it my own way. So I do that as well. So I think that will help me in the future because if I remember in one of those programs or work in a facility where they are looking for recipes that are a little more health conscious, but still with that cultural background that I'm able to use my expertise or experience with it and able to suggest these new recipes. I'm a huge fan of keeping up with a lot of things, especially if you're treating something like a career, a profession, and not a job where you put more effort, energy, time spent into learning about your practice, learning about your field. So I love that you're keeping up with some of those newsletters and watching for trends and current events. I know as far as our practice is concerned, so for anybody who might be interested in or is already going to become a dietitian, we have to maintain a certain amount of continuing education credits anyway, once we are official. So every Every five years, we have to accumulate 75 continuing education units. And that can be done in a variety of ways, whether it's reading journal articles or attending seminars and workshops or webinars or going to large conferences, writing research papers, like all these little things that you can cobble together. I tend to really like, especially since I teach so much about current things that I like to update some of the materials that either we have, you know, maybe some older textbooks or I'm creating things from scratch. So I really like keeping up on the new information that comes out with science and different food trends and medicines as well that we may have to just be aware of in our field, even though we want to, as best as we can, treat people with nutrition, but sometimes we also have to be conscientious that sometimes medicine and pharmaceuticals are the way that are going to get them to where they need to go, or they might just be on that long-term. So I love learning a lot of that different stuff too. And I'm glad that I'm glad that you do too. So Edgar, is there anything that I didn't ask you or that you want to share or a message you want to relay before we start officially wrapping up with this discussion? I want to go back to the relationship with food. I think that having a good relationship with food is very important. Um, as I as I was younger, I did kind of like struggle with weight at some points, and it had to do with other factors. But for like ten years, I was trying all these different diets: keto diet, um, what other diets? Um, no carb diet, kind of like keto, but to have all that, I, I tried various different diets and to see what would fit for me. I think that now. Currently, I have it down packed where I'm able to know what's best for me. And I think everybody has a different schedule to eat. I, some people can eat early in the morning and not have everything is great. They have the energy levels great. But I think that it's very different for everybody. Everybody has a unique experience. Um, and to be able to have that good relationship with food is very important. You may not know it, but sometimes it does affect you subconsciously. But for me, it was one of the big things that was as I learned throughout my journey. 
I really appreciate you being vulnerable in that way because we often hear about a lot of these, well, you mentioned before too, with the gratification issues and how people may, the way that people are just as far as their structure and philosophy goes, people want an immediate result or not an immediate result. And that sometimes goes in along the lines of fitness or body image or changing their approach about something and going through extreme measures and not realizing that they're not sustainable. They're not maybe the healthiest approaches to things. And so as best as people can, and this sometimes takes years, and I'm sure you can attest to this. I can too, of really starting to understand your body, your needs, like you said, the timing and things, not listening so much about, you know, when people say, oh, you shouldn't eat after six o'clock or you shouldn't have any carbs and you shouldn't do this or you should stop eating that. It's like, it's really so individualized. It's what is right for you. And so, you know, I use the word balance, but I don't really mean balanced because a lot of times balance is a 50-50 approach. And I look at it more for myself of like an 80-20, like 80% of the time, I'm going to be really honoring a lot of things that nourish me and that help support or at least manage some of the conditions that I have. I've mentioned before, I have issues with cholesterol and high blood pressure. And I also have back injuries and some inflammation problems. And so sometimes if I'm eating certain ways or I'm from being a little bit more indulgent in some things, I can feel pretty much like an automatic response of how it affects my physical body. But I would not have been able to tell you that 20 or 30 years ago, that this is the way when I eat, you know, when I do this, it equals that. And now I totally can. And so I want people just to recognize, you know, you may not have the privilege of even having access to food, in which case then whatever you can get, get. But if you are able to make some decisions and be a little bit more aware, conscientious, mindful of what kind of approach you take, try not to listen to so much of the outside conversation, especially from people who are not very well qualified in giving information to you or going through extreme approaches or these, you know, fad diets, because they can really mess with your metabolism and affect your relationship with food, as Edgar was just saying, too. Over the course of time, you start recognizing things that you feel more comfortable with, what you know does your body well, where you can afford yourself some freedom and flexibility in having fun foods and things that make you happy to celebrate and socialize. That doesn't always have to be super healthy all the time. And so Edgar, were you able, or are you still in, I feel like I'm still in the progress and the process of it, but were you able to repair some of those prior relationships that might have been a little bit more dysfunctional now, or are you still growing and learning? I think that we always growing and learning. I think that now I've had, I'm in a good, I'm in a good spot where my relationship is pretty awesome. I'm able to eat what I want and not feel guilty because before I was able to, if I ate like, for example, some pizza, I'd be like, I'll have to work out for so long or go for like a hour long jog. If I had chocolate, I couldn't have chocolate again for a long time. But now uh, I'm able to indulge myself I do have to control myself. I love chocolate. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have a whole bar. I don't feel guilty. Um, I don't feel anything anymore. I'm, I'm happy. I enjoy it. So I feel like if you wanted to have that chocolate bar and then you in the back of your mind, like you shouldn't, you're not really going to enjoy it at this, at that time. So you're not, you're really not doing yourself a favor. I eat well most of the time, but when I do want to have like a burger or pizza. I don't feel guilty anymore. I'm great. I appreciate you sharing that too. And that that's something as well. Like you just mentioned, if you feel the guilt or anxiety over something, or you start having negative self-talk about, I'm so bad. I did this. I don't deserve whatever. It really can affect so many other things in your life too. Like it's almost 
poison in your skin, right? Like the fact that you're carrying this guilt around with you and then you're just not enjoying it. Have a friggin' cookie if you want a friggin' cookie. Let it go. Tomorrow's another day. It doesn't mean you have to like make up for being quote unquote bad. You allowed yourself to indulge. You had some freedom and flexibility. And then the next time you do something, you're a little bit more aware of the choices that you're making. As we're wrapping up and coming to a close in our discussion, I have my two end of interview questions. They're somewhat related and food pun intended. So what is on your plate today? So as soon as we're wrapping up this conversation, what is the next thing that you're doing? And then what is the next meal that you're eating? So next thing I'm doing, I'm going to work out. Uh, I haven't worked out for a couple of days. So I'm going to go back on that, pick up a couple of dumbbells, and then I'm going to prep for dinner. Every day I kind of see the ingredients. I should make a list of what I'm going to make, but today I'm going to be like, uh, making pasta, some ravioli with a uh, little side salad and some sweet potato fries. Well, yeah. it has been a pleasure getting to learn and know you a little bit more outside of the school setting. Again, I'm very grateful for the time that you spent with me. Thank you for sharing your story. And I really wish you the absolute best in your future pursuits, because I do believe that this dietetics profession needs more people like you who want to make a difference and help people repair their relationship with food. So thank you so much, Edgar, for your time. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina, and I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again. Dish again.